Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Now this episode is part two. Last week I brought you into a live question and answer session I did or a mix of various different speaking engagements I did around the London area. This is part two. Now one of the reasons I'm so passionate about talking about money is that I think there's a, an overriding belief in most of society that money is somehow bad you know, that most of the evil and the greed and the power and the theft in the world is, is driven by and comes from money. And I feel it's really important to prove that that is not the case. Um, money is neither bad, money is neither good, money is nothing but a universal exchange of value. So money is neutral, it's amoral, it has no inherent emotion or meaning it's simply a mechanism to exchange with fellow human beings value and the perception of value measured in an amount exchanged through paper. It's essentially a transfer of energy. I have an idea and some energy to create a product or a service or a solution and um, I want to get that idea and that energy across to you and I want some energy back to remunerate me for my time and increase my self-worth and money is the vehicle in which we do that. So therefore money isn't good, money isn't bad, it's a reflection of humanity. And so because of that, you can choose the meaning that you make money to be for you. And of course it's true that some people will take money and fund wars and create evil through this tool, but then other people will rid polio like the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation just about has. And some people like Andrew Carnegie will set up a, a university and Vanderbilt will build libraries and foundations with money. So if you work on you, you work on your money. If you work on your mindset of money, you increase your skill set of money. And um, there's a big part of my new book, Money, which comes out on the 27th of July, which is any day now, you can get it on pre-order, which really just balances the myth that money is all these things that society impose upon you. It's not. It can be leveraged for good, it can be leveraged for bad. And so I recommend that you work out the universal laws of money, and my book should help you with that, and then use it for a force for good. So let's go live into the talk about money part two. Dan says, what do you think about the idea that we are all trying to make money in a capitalist structure? There has to be the has-nots for there to be the haves. I think this is the, the mysterious dichotomy of the life that we live. Because I'm always told that by people. Well, if everyone went and bought below market value, there'd be no below market value. And if everyone learned how to be a millionaire, then we wouldn't have the caretakers and we wouldn't have the tenants. And whilst I get that argument, there has been no other system other than capitalism 
that has proven to sustain and to improve life. Because the others, like communism, ironically, communism is perhaps more capitalist than capitalism is. Because it's just a very few people who have all the money and everyone's given it back. So whilst a lot of people can see capitalism as bad, because there's a lot of people who maybe aren't leveraging that system very well, what they fail to see is the overall quality of life over the decades has got better and better and better. We are living longer and longer and longer and longer. The healthcare is better than ever. You know, access to finance, access to lending, crowdfunding, you know, access to people, social media, the internet, fiber optics, technology. So a lot of people look at it as worse, but if you do a lot of research into it, in many areas it's better. I have this dichotomy because I have a global vision of global financial freedom, but I know I'm probably not going to hit more than 20%, no matter how big it gets. Because there's always a part of me that thinks to 80-20, Pareto principle. If you believe that as a law, then you know that no matter what you do in whatever system, in whatever society, in whatever you teach, you're going to have 80-20 principle. So if you took all the money off all the rich capitalists and gave it to all the poor people, what's going to happen in two years? Everyone knows what's going to happen. It's going to go straight back. You won't get more money until you learn to manage more of what you've already got. The deeper you dig, the more you realise everything is in this balance and there's irony and dichotomy in it as well. But if you look at capitalism, some of the richest people on the planet, they are doing the most philanthropy because that's going back into the roads, into the healthcare, into everything else. Now, if you take 98% of his wealth or 78% of his wealth, he's off to the Cayman Islands and then all the money's gone. Now, one thing I know about policy and politics is, I do not envy them. And I think if you're in those positions, you're between a rock and a hard place and you can't keep everyone happy. That's why I love being an entrepreneur. That's why I love unregulated industries. That's why I love setting up my own business. That's why I want my own foundation. People have kindly said to me with Life Leverage and my information on podcasts, this should be put in schools. Never gonna be put in schools. You know, I'm gonna be fighting an uphill battle for 20 or 30 years. In 20 or 30 years, I can make 100 million quid and give 80 million quid of it away to millions of kids in the third world. As you can see, I could rant about this for a long time, but sometimes you've got to go, what are the alternatives? And you cannot deny this, capitalism is production. We produce jobs, we produce crop, we produce products, we solve problems. That is capitalism. It's a free market to enable everybody, well, you do economics, you know, free market in which there's fair competition where you can go and set up an enterprise that produces. And it's the consumers, we need the consumers, the landlord needs the tenant. But you know, I used to worry about telling everyone about it in case the tenants started becoming the landlords. But tenants are tenants and landlords are landlords. We all have a function in society and that's their function. And I respect and honor that. Maybe a few years ago, I was a, bit, a little bit more crude, i.e., well, if you're poor, you're a loser, and if you're rich, you're a winner, and, you know, and if you're an entrepreneur, you're a winner, and you shouldn't be an employee. I've never really said like that, but I probably was a bit more crude. But the reality is, if you want to be an entrepreneur and you come to events like this, I'm here to help. But if you don't and you do what you do, what you do as a function, just do it well. Be a great tenant or be a great caretaker. Just do what you do well. Eduardo asks, how do you teach kids the value and understanding of money? So, because I believe that everything is balanced, I think too much giving or too much struggle could be bad. My children are six and three, so I've got no experience of raising kids and teaching them about money who are older. So I just want to let you know where my skills aren't. But with Bobby, I just got him from a very early age 
touching, feeling and counting money and understanding money and understanding the value of it. And he knew what all the coins were before anybody else in the school. And when we go on and watch all the golf videos, we'll also go on the golf rich list and work out who's the richest person in golf. You know, he sees Tiger Woods, 800 and whatever million. He says, how many LaFerraris can you buy with that? And we work out how many LaFerraris you can buy and you can buy about 700 LaFerraris. And then how many Pagani Zondas can you buy in that? What I was taught to do in golf is if I want Bobby to enjoy golf, then if I get the things he's also into, into golf, he'll enjoy golf. So we often take all of his dinosaurs down to the golf course. The people who are at our golf course, at first they were like, who are these weirdos? He used to go down in his Batman outfit and do putting in his Batman outfit when he was two years old. I loved it. Look at my son, Batman putting, digging him in from 30 feet. And of course, they're the old school that are like, oh, this is wrong. But of course, he's one of the highest ranked golfers in the world now at the sixth age group. So we'd take his dinosaurs with him. Or what we'll do when we putt in the morning, because I've built a putting green in his bedroom, is we will we'll putt and then we'll park some cars and then we'll putt and then we'll park some cars and then we'll putt and then we'll park some cars. And then when he putts, if he gets 10 out of 12 in or more, he wins a pound. But he likes the new shiny pounds. Doesn't want the old shitty ones. So basically trying to integrate, because here's the thing, everyone loves to learn. There's no one on the planet that I've ever met that doesn't love to learn. But no one loves to learn something rammed down their throat that they don't want to learn. And everyone loves to learn the things they love to do the most. Bobby can tell you the names of 200 dinosaurs. He loves dinosaurs. So I know I can get him to love golf if I get dinosaurs involved in golf. So I even started researching on YouTube dinosaur golf videos. And there's a couple <coughs> of silly blokes in dinosaur outfits hitting golf balls. And we have a bit of a laugh about that. So that didn't quite work out. <laughs> So when you're raising your kids and you want to teach them about money, number one is if you link it to what they already love, they'll show an interest in learning about it. Whatever your kids are already in, you get them in. Number two, I think you've got to expose them to all sides, the good, the bad, the gift, the struggle. So like, I will pay £5,000 to build a putting green in Bobby's bedroom and I will pay fifteen grand to build a mini golf course in the front garden. That's what I did. But he's got to earn all of his money after that on the golf course. When I first used to do it, I used to do it getting the ball in the hole, but then I learned smart. And it's better process, not better result. So he gets rewarded for good process. And by the way, sometimes process is standing still when another lad is playing their shot. So process is etiquette, not just technique. He's a polite boy, but sometimes he gets a bit overexcited. And golf is great for etiquette and everything else. And because, you know, learning to win and learning to lose. This, you know, like all this stuff about in school where everyone gets a trophy. Bullshit. You win, you get a trophy, you lose, you get no fucking trophy. Because when you're in the real world and you lose, you don't get a trophy. You get a load of fucking haters. That's what you get. So, like, if he wins, he gets a trophy. If he loses, he gets no trophy. So, a lot of the very successful people in business and in golf, they say, you've got to learn how to lose. So he's going to have to learn some struggle. At some point, when he starts throwing golf back at me and he doesn't realise how good he's got, I'm going to make him go work for a week in a really hard, shitty job. I'm going to make him do it. Because he needs to know, because he's got a privileged upbringing, and I know that. And so the risk is that he's a spoiled kid, and you know, he's not a spoiled kid, because I'm really careful. Link it to what they already love. Because, by the way, if you go, I'll oh, read Rich Dad for Kids when they're 12, if they're not interested in that, they're not going to do that. Manuel says, a lot of people make their wealth over a long time to only lose it quickly. What is your strongest character trait if you lost your wealth and had to start again? 
I'm probably going to make more money in my life and I'm probably going to lose more money in my life. And I've accepted that. And many of my mentors said this to me and I, I sort of thought, yeah, that sounds nice, but now I know what they mean. If you took all my money away, you can't take my experience over the last 11 years of making it. I'm going to say this with passion and volition, please don't take it as ego, but you could put me walkable distance from any town and I could walk to the town and I could probably find something to sell and I could probably sell it because I've developed those skills of sales and marketing and vision and, and whatever else. I think the thing that will always enable you to get back off onto your feet if you've had a, a hard time, which we're all going to have, is the ability to sell. And that's something that I've learned. And I say this to Mark, and Mark knows this, and I say it to everyone I speak to. Mark manages our entire portfolio, which is tens of millions of pounds. And he puts pieces of paper in front of my face and I sign them. And I don't read what he puts in front of my face. And I actually could have 0% of our joint portfolio for all I fucking know. But I trust him. If we had a break and he squirreled more than half of it and I was left with a less than equitable share, Mark can't sell like I can sell. And that's not me to say I'm better than Mark. It's me to say that's a skill I chose to develop. And if you look at many millionaires and billionaires, there's the story of them being the market traders like Alan Sugar. And a lot of them are great salespeople. I'm not saying I'm the greatest salesperson. I'm just saying I believe I could sell if things were taken away. Give me something to sell, I'll sell it. So that's number one. Number two is all the information I've accrued over the last 11 years. I listen to about four to 500 books a year, thanks to two times speed, and thanks to net time leverage of listening to it in the car, in the train, running, cycling, etc. When you overwhelm your brain with information, it stays with you. So as you say that, I can already pluck a load of ideas of what I'd do if I had no money. If I had no money and no mark, what would I do? I'd go and find a mark straight away. I'd get into rent to rent really quickly. I'd set up an e-commerce business online. I'd start deal packaging. I'd be doing this this afternoon if you nicked my money this morning. So that's part of the answer. So the other part of the answer is making damn sure you don't lose it all. That came from two places. One, being skint. I've been skint for so long, I know what it feels like to be skint. And if I go out for a meal, and it's a nice meal, and it's more than 30 quid, I still feel grateful that I can afford a meal for 30 quid because that was something I couldn't do more than once a month or once every three months when I was skinned. Because I've been there, it gives you a level of grounding. And I don't want to go back. So as Mark and I have built our wealth, we've moved it around the place into various different assets, physical, non-physical. Art and wine, Mark buys wine and all these things and you spread them all over the place. So if someone nicked all the money, if something happened and all the money went that people perceived that we had, well, you've got these layers of protection. You, you, know, you have safety deposit boxes, you have gold. It's the, the knowledge you build, but it's also as you make your money, what you do with bits of it. Now, also having kids made me do that. Because, you know, all the joking aside about, you know, Gemma, fiance and everything else. I love my family more than anything, and I would never want anything to happen to them. And I, I can be quite a reckless individual. I've just started riding a road bike. Ten years ago, I wouldn't have even thought that I'm going to die, but every time I get on that bike, I think, I could die today because I just seem to attract all of this kind of stuff. But I've always got away with it. But now I've got kids, I don't, you know, I want them to be sorted for the rest of their life. Kellyanne wants to know, why do you think talking about money is such a taboo subject? Oh, I think one, because I think 
Culturally, it's not something we do. We don't talk about our salaries. It's grotesque to talk about money. It's not done. You know, because if you go to America, they brag about it. So I think it's deep-rooted in our culture. And um, you'll know, because obviously from your Leeds, you're from Leeds, sometimes in some northern cities, it's even deeper ingrained compared to maybe where you've got the tech boom in the city of London. I'm not judging cities, but you'll probably have noticed a bit of a difference. So I think it's a deep-rooted culture, number one, linked to a fear of being judged. I think they're the two main reasons. Now, everyone might have their own individual reason. Mark, he doesn't talk about what he's worth because he doesn't want anyone to nick it. <laughs> and he always tells me not to tell everyone how many millions he's worth. And I kind of know now. Um, and I accept bribes if you want to know. No, 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 no. Um, but he definitely doesn't want his current fiance to know. Um, and I'm not judging Mark. That's his strategy. He reckons it's quite easy to halve your net worth by getting divorced. He's told me that many times before I got married. Rob, have you got a prenup? No. Should have seen the look. I'm a romantic. No prenups. Mark's having kittens about that as we speak. But we're all different. And um, what, yeah, we're, well, I've gone off on a tangent. Yeah, so Mark, Mark's fear of loss. Because he was raised by a dad who had a scarcity mindset about money. Always scared of losing it, always scared of losing it. So if you're always scared of losing it, what do you do? Any you get in, you hoard. And then what happens? Now, Mark's learned to open that up, mostly by me banging him on the head. Spend money, you type bastard. Spend money, you type bastard. Spend money, you type bastard. And then he realises he actually can enjoy some of his money. He spends, I think, 17 or might be 19% of his monthly income. Um, but, you know, years gone by, that would have been like 0.3%. Mark had like a dozen properties and was still living in a room with his mum and dad, tiny little room. You know, he's in his mid-twenties, probably not far off a millionaire then, and he's still living with his mum in a tiny room. I mean, you know, that takes a certain type of individual. Um, he could have afforded a mansion. He could have had the craziest parties. No, none of that. Um, so Mark's definitely learned to... Because I think what Mark's learned is... When you're a hoarder, in the end, you don't get any more money from people. Like, do you all remember when you used to do rounds, or you still do, and there's always one person that shirks it. It's their round. Oh, they've gone home. Oh, they're, you know. And they think they've got away with it a couple of times. No. You're not going to be lent. You're not going to lend them any money. You're not going to give them any money. You're not going to support them when they're down. That's how the world, the universe, people, our planet, call it what you want. You know, we are a reflection of what we give out. So if you hoard, in, you, could, you can stash a bit, but if you hoard, people stop giving you money because they see that you're a hoarder. And it, it breaks the universal laws of money. Money needs to move, to, to flow, to exchange. Currency means flow. But by the same note, nature, if you get money and you spray it all over the place and you're terrible at managing it, people won't lend you money because they can see you're terrible at managing it. That's why I see, say, manage... Learn to manage money, and then you'll master money. You're already making a decent crust. If you learn to manage better what you're already getting, you'll naturally get more. Because the world will view you as good at managing it. And people lend money, and give money, and buy things from people they perceive are giving good value to them, and managing their money well. So as you learn this, your net worth goes up. Jean says... How has money changed you? You were once a struggling artist and now you're a millionaire. I think that money doesn't necessarily change you. It just exaggerates your traits. 
So, because I've, I've obviously spent a long time, and I, 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 at the moment, I'm at about 500 books a year I listen to. Do the two times speed thing, it really helps. And I've been building that, those numbers up over the years. So I must have got a good 1,500 books in my head. Now, my mentor, John Demartini's done 29,000. He's in his 60s. So I, that's why I love learning. I've always got more to learn. But one thing I've discovered about money is money doesn't change you, it exaggerates your traits. If you have a lack of it, it exaggerates your traits. And if you have an abundance of it, it exaggerates your traits. So if you had someone who was really bad at managing money and you gave them a load of money, it's going to exaggerate what they do. So, you know, it's really, really quite famous. I did some studies in my book about lottery winners because nearly all of them, two years later, not five years, not 20 years, two years later, and they've either lost it all or they're in more debt. And many of them say it's ruined their life. Why? Because what they did with money, they did more of it. So any addictions or bad management practices, all that a million quid does is speed that up. You know, so imagine you're a drinker and you get a million quid. You're going to drink more and buy more drinks for everyone else. No, no, no. But so money didn't change me. It exaggerated my traits that were latent. So um, I think I've, I definitely spend more money. So I have definitely, in the years gone by, have had an addiction to spending. Like, you know, retail therapy. I feel down or empty. I'll buy something. It'll make me momentarily feel better until I see the credit card statement and then the depressed will be doubled. And then I'll need to go and spend more to fill the void up because the void's got deeper. And then I see the credit card and then it drops even more. This is how addictions ma mainly work. So I used to spend more. I could sell. I could convince someone of something I was interested in. I was pretty good with people when I wasn't at home listening to German heavy metal and painting at two in the morning. So when you took all of that away, I, I could do those things. And money got me out of that and doing more of those things. Um, so I still like to spend money. But what I did was, I thought, if I want to grow wealth, I need to learn how to do it. I need to learn how to manage money. So I learned about investing. I learned about the levels of, you know, you, the levels of, of money. I get yourself out of debt, save, low-risk investments, higher-risk investments, speculation, diversification, and then insurance. So you've got these seven levels. I'll explain it all in the book, the seven levels. And um, so I wanted to learn about that. So, for example, with watches, I've always want, I've always, like, for me, watches is the only material or jewellery type expression of a man. It's not that I'm against earrings and stuff, but I was raised by a tough, cold, northern man from Uddersfield. If I came back with an earring, that would not roll in my household. So I didn't have a chance like some people do, and I'm not knocking any of that, but to me, a watch is the only way to say, this is a material expression of who I am. This is a way for us to connect. You've got a tag on, so we've got a conversation. We've got common interests. This is what we want as people anyway. I spotted your Rolex straight away, John, when we were talking. It's an opener. We, for you to know what a Rolex is, there, something has to have gone on in your brain that's similar to me. So I know that we're, I'm safe around you. So what I learned to do with watches is buy watches that go up in value, not down in value. So I'm feeding my addiction in a positive way. I, um, I give a decent amount of money our way to charities. So I'm feeding my addiction in a positive way. So, yeah, it's, it's exaggerated all of my traits. My son Bobby was the youngest player in the World Under Six Championships last year in San Diego. he just turned five. He was the youngest. And um, my dad always got me into sport. And some of the best moments I've ever had with my dad are when I've been on the playing field and we've really connected because he loves sport and I love sport. 
And, you know, that's come through me to Bobby and I've really encouraged Bobby to get into sport for similar and different reasons. And my dad is getting on and I don't know how long he's going to be here. And he absolutely loves seeing Bobby play golf. So thanks to the money I've made, I take him around the world with Bobby on all the golf trips. So money has enabled my dad, three generations of our family, to spend more time together than we would have done, giving my dad experiences that he'll remember for his rest of his life, and giving my son experiences that he'll remember way beyond my, you know, my dad passing. That's the gift that money brings, because I couldn't afford to do that if I was skinned. I spent 35 grand on airfares this year, booking all the travel to go to San Diego, to go to North Carolina, to go to um, Scotland, to go to all the places where Bobby's doing his golf and go on all the trips. And, um, you know, and I got all mine on Amex, thanks to Mark hacking the system. So it wasn't like I was just spraying money around, but you know, to, I want to pay my, for my parents to go business class. So the generosity that was inside of me, money has brought out. The selfishness that's inside me, money has brought out because we're all generous and we're all selfish. And you need to be both. If you're purely selfless, you will self-negate. If you're purely selfish, society will negate you. So a lot of people have guilt around being selfish. But charity starts at home. I had to get my head down, get a new group of friends, spend a few years working out how to sort myself out before I can go and heal the world. So it just exaggerates all your traits. So I think a lot of people who knew me the old then and now, they'd probably say, the main things they'd probably say, I've mellowed a bit since I've had kids. And I think money has probably given me a longer term view. I don't have such a desperation now. When I started and I was in my mid-twenties and getting ahead and raising finance and buying my first few deals, I was relentless and what do the Americans call it? Hustle, hustle, grind, grind. But I didn't have a family back then. So I, I probably am more comfortable that good things will happen. Whereas then I was hustling, trying to make it happen. So in some ways I opened more doors when I was younger, but in other ways I pushed people away because I was too persistent, because you can be too persistent, because you can bug people. So maybe, you know, but that's probably age and wisdom and kids. I don't think it has, but you know, my, I don't know how my, I don't know if my perception of myself is the same as other people's perceptions. I mean, my haters will say it's made me a twat. My, my fans will say it's made me a lot better. I mean, the podcast is free for anyone in the world. We've got people in 174 countries that subscribe to that podcast in countries I never knew ex existed. And I give as much value as I can for free. There's no ads. Now, why are there no ads? Because one, I don't want to sell out. And two, I don't need the money. Now, if I needed the money, I'd have to sell ad space. And you'd have an ad at the start, two ads in the middle. And every five minutes, I'd be saying, and wait, here's a note from our sponsors. And that, that, that pisses me off. And that might piss you off. So how can I afford to do this for free? And I always get, um, I've got a driver who has a Range Rover who always takes me on the trips and I pay for Harry, the, the, the guy who's doing the filming and I you know, want to travel comfortably. So I'm creating economy. So Tim, our driver, gets good jobs and Harry's employed by us. And you know, I go and interview all these people and I make, make a day out of it and I give big tips in London and all this kind of stuff and I'm creating all this economy. Now, I couldn't do that if I needed the money for the podcast, if it was a pure revenue generation exercise. So, if you have good intentions and good values, money will exaggerate, money will exaggerate that. But, if someone came and offered me a ridiculous amount of money to do ads on the podcast, I, I might be open to that. <laughs> so, you know, I love money and everyone's got a price. You advertise the book. Yes. The next question is from Paul, and he wants to know, where does the government fit into all this? Yeah, 
there's a decent, well, there's, there's quite a lot about capitalism, there's quite a lot about quantitative easing, there's quite a lot about the system and stuff. And um, so, again, I need to go back to go forward because it's quite a complicated qu question. So, where do the governments fit into this? Well, it's not really the governments that control money, it's more the central banks. Um, but ultimately, they create the targets for the economy. And of course, the targets for the economy is always growth. Um, and they pump more money into the system if they want to fuel growth through QE. Um, and they make the policies and rules and regulations. Now, I know a lot of people think that qu quantitative easing is bad because it devalues all the money in the economy because you're printing more of it. But we've been doing that since time began because you had a gold coin 750 years ago and you put a bit of lead in it because, you know, you wanted to debase it a bit to keep a bit. Exactly. You know, and that's why they put the edges around the coins to stop the filing of the coins. So what the banks and the governments are doing now, it's no different than we've been doing from history. And all it, you know, the, the debasing of money is essentially inflation. But what inflation does is erode the debt you have. So I know I'm in a room full of property investors as well as business owners. So, um, you know, people moan about, you know, quantitative easing, devaluing money and inflation, whatever. But if you have two million quid worth of mortgages and inflation gets high, like three or four or five percent, then the government's paying your debt down. So there's always an upside to every downside. And also, whilst quantitative easing can devalue the rest of the money in the economy, it's very minor if you think that there's, I think there's about 70 or 80 trillion of currency, thank you, in, in the economy. So, you know, if they, if they put another trillion in, it's still only one 80, 80th of, of the total amount of money. Um, but I don't really see it that way. I see money as uh, a manifestation of a service or value you gave to someone else. So, you know, people see money as in what they've got in the bank and if it's getting 5% interest or 7% return or, you know, if it's got no interest and it's being um, eroded by inflation in the bank or whatever else or what the government are doing. But if you go and create a new product and you put it out to the market and your market love it, you're pulling a shitload more money than you'd have, lo you'd have lost because of extra printing of money. So money isn't really about what you've got in your bank or what you're hoarding in savings. Money is a, it's like if money is a universal exchange of value, then how much money you've got or you've made is the symbol of how much value you've created. So money isn't just an exchange of value and a, a universal mechanism of me measuring value. It measures your value. So, you know, your net worth is a monetary valuation of the service you've provided to fellow man. Because we only get money from fellow man. You know, I, can't, I can only get money from a person. You know, dogs don't pay you money. Or no one, nothing, nothing or no, anyone else pays you money other than people. So like, when a lot of people are, oh, well, they're worth this and they're talking about this and it's a really bad thing. But you know, someone might talk in the same way about their collection of things that they have or the way they're raising their children or some good things they've done or a degree they've got. The, the things that they're talking about that are important to them, that they say to other people with pride, they are things that they've collected that measure who they are. And so the fuck is money. Because if I've made money through selling books and whatever else, that proves that there's a lot of people out there that value what I've written. Because by the way, if they didn't, they'd ask for a refund and I'd have no money again. Because that's how the world works. Look at Nick Leeson. Look at Bernie Madoff. 
You can look like you're doing good, but as soon as the value goes, so does everything else. So does the money, and often more. So quantitative easing is actually a really good thing in a lot of ways because it fuels the flow of money again. And the paradox of thrift is that when people fear anything, a war or money or the banks or a recession, they hoard their money and then it, it, it um, constricts the economy. But what we need in those times is economic growth. So that's why they print more money. And we had to print more money because there wasn't enough gold in the world to back all the money. I think we came off the gold stand in 1974, <coughs> I think it was. It's all in the book. So, um, so if I could be quite so blunt, I don't really care about the government. Like, I can't knock on the door and go, fucking sort it out, mate. <laughs> I, you know, like, everyone seems to do that on social media forums all day, every day. But here's the thing. I, 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 I write about this in my book. I, I think you've got two choices. Spend 30 years campaigning and get yourself in a seat in the house where you can make a difference. Or let them do what they want. Observe their policy changes over time because there are going to be some important ones to you. And be an entrepreneur and go and make a load of money and go and give a, a load of value. I, I've never really, I'm not really into politics. I, don't, you know, I need to know the things that I need to know. But I can't do anything about it. If, you know, I can't do anything about quantitative easing. They're not going to go, oh, Rob said on his podcast, don't do it. So I, I definitely have a more, um, like, I'm an, I'm an ex-previous, really bad artist. And there's a, there's a creator in me. I love to create. I love to build things. I love to see things being built and have something that's a physical material manifestation of an idea that I had. That's what business is. That's what money is. The money you've got in your pocket is a manifestation of an idea you had to split a house into flats or do serviced accommodation or create an audio book or a book or a CD programme or, or whatever business it is that you had. So what's wrong with keeping the score in notes? Nothing wrong with that. It's, it's, one of the, it's probably the main metric of measurement. So if you keep creating, you keep offering service, you keep giving value, you know, like the key is... Someone gives you 20 quid and you give them 21 quid or more worth of value. That's the key to how you run your business and you live your life. And I'm going to be selling a book when it launches in imminently. Um, I'm going to be selling that for a tenner. And that's 10 years of my life's work. So, you know, the market will tell me if what I'm doing is good and they value it by how many people buy the book. Sandeep says... Have you got tips or advice about how to bring the discussion of money forward so we don't waste time? Okay, that's a really wide question. Um, if I want to make some kind of change or impact, I always go to the quote, be the change you want to see. And in every, like I hire 75 staff, and you know, I observe the communities of tens of thousands of people and how they interact. And when I look at a problem that someone else has with someone else, what they can't see is how they're a part of the problem. All they can see is how the other person is part of the problem. Let's say, for example, someone's got a manager and there's a, not a really a great atmosphere in their team. And they're like, oh, I want you to manage like this. Whereas if they became the atmosphere, the atmosphere would change. So this is like, I want to make more money for my life. So I'm being the change I want to see by 
bringing value to the world around money. So, you know, because, like, you have to, if you, being a human being and evolving in society as a species is the elegant balance between selfish and selfless. And any time you get into either extreme in debates or arguments or thoughts or beliefs, you're out of balance with how the world works, in my humble experience. So, let me give you an example. We all want to be happy. That's a naive delusional fantasy. Because if you live your life in manic happiness, like, I mean, you'd love a manically happy JV partner, because they'll just give you the money. But they won't do any diligence or research. And so, often, you'll make bad decisions when you're up. And of course, you'll make bad decisions when you're down. So any extreme emotion erodes wealth and can erode progress. So you need balance. So money, like you have to value yourself enough to charge for your worth, to say this is what I'm worth, pay it. That's selfish. But then you have to give equal or more value to what they're paying for them to, to, to sustain value. And that's selfless. Now, all the billionaires on the planet, they, they balance that. Now, what poor people do is go, you're selfish. But Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have virtually eradicated polio. There's a, few, there's a handful of people left in the world with polio. And there were millions. And these selfish, capitalist, money-grabbing bastards, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, have just solved one of the worst diseases we still have in the world. But yeah, they probably were quite selfish when their computer didn't fucking work on you. Oh, the amount of times I've need, needed to do a presentation and you get that on the screen, <laughs> just before your slides come up. There was times in his life when, Warren, when um, Bill Gates was probably too capitalist and maybe too selfish and then society goes, you should start giving that away. And then he sets up a foundation and then he becomes a philanthropist. So society will force balance. If you're too greedy, society will force it away. If you're too self-negating, society will lift you up and help you. Because that's how it works. Um, a lady reached out in the community about four months ago and said she'd been having suicidal thoughts. And geez, you should have seen hundreds of us all going in helping her. I organised a call with a rent-to-rent -rent mentor because she was doing rent-to-rent. -rent. She got two free calls out of me. I, I did a video, a 25-minute video on dealing with these depressing thoughts because we all have them. Hundreds of people went on and commented. So when you're extremely down, society will lift you up. When you're extremely up, society will pull you down. That's the way we survive and thrive as a species. It is the way the world works, according to my research. I'm not saying I know everything. So... If you want to raise more money, you've got to balance those two things. You're, balance, you're basically saying to me, I don't want all this waffle and bollocks and discussion. I just want the money in quicker for fuck's sake. <laughs> in, in a way, you know. Sod this 10 lunches shit, you know. Bring your bank statement with you to Mayfair PPM, motherfucker. You know, it's like... <laughs> That's not quite how you... So, so what you're balancing is your outcome with their outcome. So, if you want to get the conversation moving a bit towards money, then start taking the conversation down a bit towards money, but then when you get a point of resistance, back off. Because resistance and rejection is feedback. You just back off a bit. Now, what you'll find with raising money from people is a lot of, peop a lot of people need three, five, seven, ten meetings. There's people in this room who've got money who are looking for people like you which is why it's wise to ask a question, because now they know you. Um,
And I've probably not helped you pitch that much, have I? <laughs> Sorry. Um, so a lot of people need to see you five or ten times. A lot of people are watching you, and I'm, now I'm talking about you, plural. A lot of people have been watching you for your friends, your family, people in your network who've got money. They're not, most people aren't going to go, hey, mate, I've got a load of money. Just letting you know up front. They're going to watch you, see if you crash and burn or see if you do it well. Let someone else be a crash test dummy. This is what Mark does all the time. This is what Mark did to me. I, it took me from December till March to get the money out of Mark. Three months out of Mark, it's pretty good going. But I tried 942 times. But Mark never told me he had any money until he got really pissed one night. And that was very insightful. Um, so... If you, so the best answer I can give you is to find out the values of the individual partner that you're liaising with and dealing with and meet their values through your pitch. Because basically selling is caring if you're good at it. If you care enough to find out what's most important to your JV partner, that's selfless. And that's the best pitch. Because your JV partner doesn't want to give you money to make you rich or solve your problems that you need the money by tomorrow afternoon. No one wants to do that. They want to give you money to meet their own needs and values. They want a return. They want it out of the bank. You know, they want to learn. All the things that they want. So it's a very selfless act being a JV partner. But of course you're trying to meet your own needs too. And when you show people, the world, that you care enough about them to put pitches together that are bespoke in nature and are very much showing that you know the individual and care about the individual, that reduces friction and then it increases the speed of money. The next question is from Kwame and he wants to know, how do you know when you've made enough money? Um, it depends on who you are and what your values are. Oftentimes our values, i.e. what's most important to us in our life, are driven by voids, i.e. what we don't have enough of. If, you know, like health and fitness is often on people's values when they don't feel they're healthy or fit enough. Or if you get ill or get unfit, it'll go high on your values because you feel, ugh. So generally, not always, but generally, on your values is where you have voids in your life and you're always trying to fill your voids. So, m people who don't have a void of money will feel that they'll get to a point and that's enough. People who have money as high on their values, i.e. they feel they have a void, it will never be enough. And um, I experience that. When is it ever enough? Well, not yet and probably never. And it's enough for me and it's enough for my family and it's enough for my extended family and it's enough for me to have, I had at one point, 14 cars and it's enough for me to have, you know, all the op opulent items I want and go where I want but it still wasn't enough. And the reason it wasn't enough is because also on my values is growth. So if I don't make more money next year, I don't feel like I'm growing as a person because money is one of the values of me being successful, one of. So the, 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 the strive and the desire to make more money is linked to the strive and the desire to grow and become a better person. So yeah, um, it's, it's, and, and the billionaires, they just keep making billions. And I also found that when your cause becomes greater than you, your hunger for success and money increases, but not just to fill your own void, but to help other people too. Yeah, I don't, I don't work too much. 
I mean, you can have assets that create passive income. So you don't have, to, there's earned income and there's passive income. Yeah, that's the best kind of money. By the way, it's okay for it never to be enough if that's how you feel about it. Like a lot of people, they're imposed by society how they should think and feel about how they think and feel. Go bollocks to all of that. You should think and feel that's right for you, balancing selfishness and selflessness. So as long as you're ecological, ethical, and you're, you, know, you do good to other people and give value, you know, I had a really shit, rusty Vauxhall Astra that was my first car. F-Reg, banger. Even worse, I'm embarrassed, I modded it. <laughs> Why do you mod a shit car? You know, lowered it. K&N air filter, P-Car exhaust, if you're old enough to remember those mods. Put about 30 brake horsepower on a 30 brake horsepower car. And quite a few people thought, what a wanker. And then I bought a Ferrari. And quite a few people thought, what a wanker. So no matter what car I had, people were going to judge me. So I'll take the Ferrari. Yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> All right. The next question is from Peter. He says, £50,000 in consumer debt is a lot of money. How did you get out of that? So I bought 20 properties with Mark Homer's money in 2006. Another 30 properties in 2007 with his mum's money, his stepdad's money, my mum's money and my uncle's money. And then when we'd pissed all the family off or borrowed all their money, because it was one or the other, then we went to external investors. And th that was just from a chance meeting with Mark Homer at the Holiday Inn, December 2006. So we started buying properties, lots of single lets in sort of lower end streets in Peterborough. And we just tried to buy as many of them as we can. We got probably, we got to about October of that first year and we had a load of deals going through and Mark had a little bit of a panic and said, we're not buying anymore because it wasn't my money. I said, yeah, let's keep going. And you know what it's like with property? It's like buses, isn't it? So you know, it takes you ages to get something. Then you've got Fridays when you've got two or three exchanges going on the same Friday at the end of the month. And I love the hustle and the buzz of it. And like I said, because it was Mark's money, he was a bit worried about it because it all happened a bit quickly because I just kept bugging him to do it quicker more, quicker more, quicker more, quicker more. Mark was, was still is, but was a great mentor to me because when I met Mark, Mark had experience in property, experience in business you know, he'd saved a decent amount of money, i.e. enough deposits for quite a lot of properties. And he'd been doing it since he was 17 years old. He used to ship cars from Ireland and bring them over and sell them and make money. He had a little business at university selling DVDs and stuff like that. And he was always, you know, he just loved being business since he was like a kid. And so I learned a lot from him very quickly. You know, I'd got to the point where, well, in a month or two, I'll probably be bust anyway, so let's get into this property thing. Let's chase this Mark guy. Let's read all the books he tells me to read. Let's go into his office where he's working and sit there and shadow him and hound him to get me a job. And let's just, I just felt like I had nothing to lose. You could argue that that was ballsy, but again, because I had nothing to lose, it wasn't. You know, I blagged a job with no CV in a property company. I took no wages. You could argue that that was ballsy. I think if you've got a hunger, a desire and a passion, you can make things happen quickly. And um, it takes time to get rich, but not a lifetime. And so it probably took me... In my first year, I probably went from 50 grand in debt to making nearly 100 grand. In the second year, you know, it grew and it grew and it grew. The first year it was pretty active income. The second and third years it started to become more passive. 
You really need 20 to 50 single lets, depending on your area, to have a good passive income. Because you know what it's like. You want passive income, but as you're building your portfolio, it seems to be all active and reactive and not passive, but you've got to build that asset base. But property's been very, really good to me. And um, as I was an artist, I had this plan. Because I was kind of like a weird creative guy, and I'd, I'd like paint at 11 o'clock at night, or I'd paint at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'd paint all these random times. And in the day, I didn't really do much because I didn't really feel creative or inspired. Or I had to get myself quite depressed to do good art. Or when I say good art, I mean what I thought was good art. Peterborough, they didn't understand my art. I was too soon for Peterborough. <laughs> they weren't ready for me. So I used to put German heavy metal on and get really fucking depressed and, and, and paint some crazy shit that no one in Peterborough understood that I never sold. But I had all day free. And all I was doing was martial arts all day back then. And so I thought, well, I'll do property in the day and I'll go and work for this guy a few days a week, Mark's boss at the time, and I'll paint at night. And that was my plan. I never did a painting again because property just kind of helped me along the way and Mark was great for me. The final question is from Tom. He says, I've got some money, but I want to make more. How can I do that? I'm the wrong person to ask this because I have a really abundant mindset of money and I think you can make money out of anything. I'll give you an example. Um, one of my mates was a dentist. I'm walking around at my wedding and everyone's got teeth like Wallace and Gromit, you know, when they go like that and it's all white. And I'm thinking, this guy's making a killing. And, you know, you look at someone's white teeth and, oh, where'd you get your teeth done? And the, the, the referrals and the cross-selling and the upselling that's going on at the wedding is unbelievable. And my friend Tosh, he's a brilliant dentist and basically he's a good people person and he probably owns more than any dentist I know. And he's just started doing Botox. I want to be selling Botox because if there's anything in the world that women and men will pay for is how to preserve their age. And, um, you know, it's not just ladies, now it's men, but if I could go back to when it was mostly ladies, there are many ladies who will spend a lot of money on the creams and on the potions and on the promise of staying younger. And a lot of ladies spend more than they earn on that. My missus spends 50 quid on frickin' face cream. Now this is like, you know, and I go a bit of that down the deep caverns of my forehead. Don't waste it! <laughs> so I'd love, to I'd love to be in the coffee business. I'd make a load of money out of me. Um, so I think it's an unbelievably unprecedented time to make money in virtually. Because when someone knows how to make money, they see money in everything. You know, obviously I make a lot of money buying properties, but I make a lot of some money selling books. And then I ran a property course and made money doing that. And then I did a public speaking course and made money doing that. I was just saying to someone, um, a lot of people are asking me about the podcast. I'm going to set up a, a global online how to set up and monetize your podcast course. It's quite funny. One of my haters once, because I've got a few, when you've got a gobble like mine, one day Rob's going to do a course on how to do a course. I thought, what a brilliant idea. I'll have that. <laughs> Damn right I will. Because how to run a course, how to run an event. You know, Matt's been running around all over the place because, you know, he hasn't got maybe as much help. It's, it's bloody difficult. So, I have an abundant view that you can make money out of anything. But I'm going to give you some models in a minute because I don't think that was the angle you were going for and I want to try and answer your angle. But what you want to write down is the following. How do you generally, you know, generically make money? Number one is you solve a problem. Number two, you give service or value. Number three, I, or 2A, is um, high margin, high priced value. Someone is still at the moment, it's been going on for years, I've written about it in my book Money, I wrote about it in my book Life Leverage, it's still going on. Someone has been building Roman Abramovich's boat, his new one, the biggest boat in the world, the yacht. 
and it's reputed to be between 400 million and 1.2 billion US dollars. Now, Roman Abramovich is not going, I want a discount, and he's not going, I want the cheapest boat. It's like whatever it would cost. And the margin surely will be 30% on that. Because if, if it's not 30% on that because of the low volume, then they've got it wrong. So you've got, so, you know, selling to the affluent is much easier because, you know, they know money more, moves more freely. I went to Rolex today to look at buying Gemma a watch and she tried a, an Everose gold Daytona on it's 27 grand. And I know I can get one 45% cheaper if it was at a discount, but it was really hard for me not to buy it. And he nearly had me. I'm bloody easy to sell to. Um, and most rich people are because they, they, they know how money works. Um, so the next thing is if you can do your service to vast numbers of people. So um, Hans Rowling and family, billionaires, and then when they died, their kids, billionaires, some through inheritance and some through taking the legacy of the business. And that, their company is Tetra Pak. And all they do is stop, originally stopped your, the birds getting in your milk bottles, and all they really do is packaging. But, you know, they might, be, they might have billions of packages a day that they make. 3M make billions out of post-it notes because there's billions of customers, or hundreds of millions of customers, and billions of post-it notes. So you've got increasing, it's basically increasing your customer base. The next thing which is really important, care about people. People don't care what you know till they know that you care. And if you care about people, people will sense it and they'll trust you and they'll give you money. And if you don't, they, this is why selfish and selfless have to balance. If you care about people too much, you won't charge them enough money, you'll give them too much service, your overhead will go up, your profit will go down, you won't be able to sustain your business. If you're too selfish and you're greedy and you take money, you don't give service, they'll want refunds, they'll tell everyone else about you and you'll, um, you'll, again, your overheads will go up. So your overhead is linked to your caring of people. Because customer service costs money. And if you care about people, you have less customer service, it costs you less money. In the, in the world of what I do, which is buying property and running training businesses and selling, ultimately I sell information. That's what I do. You know, I solve your pains and problems and it helps you make more money. It's information-based selling. So if I was starting again, what, what would I do? If I was getting into property and I had some money, I definitely want to get a staple portfolio under my belt. So maybe, it depends how much some money is. Is that 20 grand or 200 grand or 2 million? So I'd probably try and get a single let or two. And then I'd get into rent to rent as quick as I could. Or a way of negating putting deposits in. Maybe let borrowing deposits through joint ventures, or like I said, rent to rent, or doing option agreements. So I'd get a couple of properties under my belt to learn the process. And then I'd go into create creative finance because I need the finance because I've got some money, not a lot of money. And then as soon as I had something that other people showed an interest in, and the gauge is people come up to you and say, oh, you're that guy, you do that, I'm interested in that. When you've got enough people saying that, then you get into selling information. So what you've done, that you've sold the problem for for yourself, that you've made money in and you've got knowledge in, you sell the information to people who are like how you were when you started. And, you know, I wasn't going to do public speaking courses until I learned public speaking and did 250 speeches in a year and got world records for public speaking, and then I did. And then I wasn't going to do a course on how to run your business until I'd run a business, and then I did. And I don't know how many courses we've got now. Dozens of courses. Now, I wouldn't have a course if there wasn't a demand. And I also wouldn't run a course if I didn't have knowledge in it. So I'm only going to sit here and talk with volition about something I've done. And if it's not... I'll JV with someone who has.
like Paul Smith with service accommodation or Glendale with commercial conversion or whatever. So then you can JV and leverage other people. So that's the next thing on your money making. How can I leverage someone else? I leveraged Mark Homer. He had money, he had experience, he had knowledge. I had enthusiasm, passion, and a, a desire to go and sell and market and get out there and talk to people and network and to influence people. That's what I had, that, that's what he had, and they were complimentary. Thank you, everyone.